Hello and welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, hello there, everybody. Dr. Dick and Weatherby, welcome back to Optimal, the podcast. We've taken a few months off here for the summer. I'm not sure if I had much of a summer because uh, we've had a lot of smoke here in our valley in around Bend, Oregon. So we've been dealing with smoke, which has become the new normal, I guess. Anyway, I'm joined by Beth Ellen DeLulio, as usual. Beth, you down in Florida? Yes, I am. Surviving hurricane season? Hi, so far. We've been lucky on the southwest corner of Florida. We've been very lucky. Excellent. Well, <laughs> so we're back for another round of Optimal the Podcast, and we're hoping to sort of change things up a little bit, Beth. So. We're going to dive in as we do into a topic of the month. So the topic of the month this month is menopause. We did andropause very last podcast, so it felt appropriate to flip the switch and do menopause. So Beth Allen has been spending the last few months diving deep into the research and writing a wonderful white paper that we will be releasing on OptimalDX.com, ODX's website plus also a whole load of blog posts. So that actually brings something to mind to me is summer has been very busy. We're doing an overhaul of the Optimal DX website. In fact, by the time you're listening to this, the new website will be up and running. So do go over there. There's a lot more information. We now have two blogs at ODX. We have Optimal the blog, which is sort of more of our general interest blog. Beth does great articles and posts things up. In fact, we're going to be going over one of the blog posts up there were a little hint of what we're going to cover called the Mediterranean Food Pyramid. So we're going to cover that a little bit and just go over that. But that is up on uh, Optimal, the blog. And then we've also got the ODX Research blog, which is an opportunity for us to do a deeper dive into topics, conditions, biomarkers, and really present some of the deep research. We've got a brand new resource center. So go over to the resource center. We've got white papers that we've written monographs on biomarkers we've got guides we've got handouts we've got videos we've got upcoming webinars so a ton of great stuff coming up at optimaldx.com beth let's dive into before we get into some of the other stuff we're going to answer some ama questions we're going to go through that mediterranean food pyramid now a little bit of a chat towards the end about some of our favorite things that we're doing on a daily basis daily routines favorite supplements that sort of thing sort of a more of a personal interest side to the blog to the podcast. Before we do that, let's dive into the work that you have done on menopause. So the topic of the white paper, scrolling to the top here, is going to be called Menopause, Biomarkers and Physiological Changes. So really looking at menopause through the lens of biomarker changes, physiological changes that happen. But tell us a little bit about what are some of the things that you picked up while you were doing this research work and writing the paper? So many things. So many things. <laughs> time for everything. We don't have time for everything, but it's all in the white paper. Well, the funniest thing, I, as I thought, as I started to write this and reread it, these disruptive symptoms, that's what most women will think of menopause disruptive symptoms really are so front and center. 
but really they're disruptive for their partners as well. So everybody should listen up for this because when the woman is going through this change and the hormonal fluctuations cause all these symptoms, the loved ones around them are definitely affected as well because there can be mood changes. But one of the major symptoms is vasomotor changes and those are hot flashes, night sweats. Then women can get headaches related to the change or the menopausal period, poor sleep, depression, weight gain. These things can be anticipated. And then when the biochemical changes confirm a woman is really going through menopause, then really, if they haven't already been taken, steps should be taken to try to naturally reduce some of these adverse effects of menopause. So I wanted to point out this disruptive symptoms don't just disrupt the woman's life, but also Mm. those around her. So that's a warning, (laughs) be warned. But yeah, the hormone levels, they can be monitored. Although some women do breeze through menopause with just no symptoms at all, no mood changes, but some women do have those changes. So you want to take a look, make sure it really is menopause that's causing this. And we'll talk about that because there are chronic diseases that are associated with this period of time. And you want to rule those out or anticipate those possibly coming around and you can take preventative measures. But the hormonal changes that you can actually check for and monitor, of course, would be estrogen, especially estradiol, which is the most prominent circulating estrogen. Mm-hmm. Progesterone, AMH is anti-mullerian hormone. FSH, testosterone, and DHEA are the main ones. And that's, again, to tell if a woman really is in menopause, how long has she been there, when's the last period. All these things go into evaluating the actual final menstrual period and menopause has begun. But these are things that you can watch, these biomarker levels. But the other thing that's so important that I found out that I wasn't even aware of as I went through the change, <laughs> but the increased risk of cardiovascular disease and metabolic disorders that can occur because of menopause, not yeah. just because of age. Yeah. So you have to be aware of that. Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that I saw sort of relating oh, to sorry. that was, and again, this is in the white paper, it said, you know, as the use of LDL cholesterol for estrogen production in the ovaries mm-hmm. decreases, circulating LDL cholesterol increases, so which is the characteristic dyslipidemia that is associated with menopause. And I think there was a research study that you cite here. It says what within one year of menopause, total mm-hmm. and LDL cholesterol and apolipoprotein B can become substantially elevated. So of mm-hmm. course, the cardiovascular risk and the cardiovascular implications of that are pretty significant. So And even juxtaposed on that would be the fact that oxidative stress increases with menopause. Estrogen actually has anti-inflammatory, antioxidative stress function. So as estradiol drops, yeah, now women are more exposed to oxidative stress, which then can oxidize the LDL cholesterol. That's really the problem, right? Oxidized LDL Mm. cholesterol, oxidized cholesterol is really the bad cholesterol. So yeah, they really are becoming now prone to or exposed to more risk factors for cardiovascular disease. That's a biggie. And something else I was fascinated by, and I hadn't thought about this, was that menopause occur. I mean, okay, I'm going to back this up a little bit. When we were looking at andropause, andropause is not the cessation of the production of testosterone in men. It is a, sort of a decline in testosterone and the related symptomology that occurs with that. You point out here is that menopause is actually a full stop. It's not a pause. It's actually the cessation of menstruation in women and the hormonal changes that occur with that. And one of the things that I had never really thought about was that menopause actually occurs in phases. Mm-hmm. And you list these phases very clearly. And there's a research study that you cite for that. Mm-hmm. So you have pre-menopause, no cycle changes, menses occurs 
within three months. And then you have early perimenopause, late perimenopause, postmenopause, mm-hmm. early postmenopause, and late postmenopause. Now, I was wondering, are each of those phases um, marked by somewhat predictable hormonal changes, or is it more of a just what's happening to the menstrual cycle at each of those particular phases? Well, the broader, we'll have, I actually have a table in there. Some of the broader changes, you can just look and say, well, you know, the AMH is dropping really low. Menopause is going to be inevitable with X number of years. And then as you watch these, how low did the estradiol go? Then you know you're into early perimenopause, but they're not very specific for every one of those subcategories. But just in general, when you look, especially the FSH, the AMH and the estradiol, you know, a woman's starting to go into early perimenopause. And then you have to look at that alongside of when was the last menstrual period. Mm. And then look at the biomarkers. When was the last menstrual period? Look at the biomarkers. So there's not really specific, specific, like this is going to happen six months prior to the final menstrual period. But the general phases, yes, they can be tracked with these biomarker changes that we have in our tables in our white paper. (laughs) Yeah. So any of those changes sort of jumped out at you as things? Well, the estradiol dropping and the levels it can drop down to is a biggie and the progesterone dropping so much because it's really the fluctuation and that big drop that causes a lot of the symptoms. So that's the biggie. The AMH, this anti-mullerian hormone is important too, because it can drop and also helps women predict fertility. But for menopausal, if a woman's AMH is dropping precipitously as she approaches age 45, 48, then you know that's related to to Mm. menopause for the most part. So yeah, you can track these. And then again, the physician or the gynecological doctor that's following a woman will be hopefully tracking these and then deciding what to do about the low estrogen levels if there are symptoms. I love that you're hopeful that that's happening because probably it's not. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, tell me a little bit about, I mean, anti-malarian hormone AMH, obviously it's now in the ODX software, we are able to track it and it's appearing on our reporting. But it seems to me that that's sort of a really important hormone to be measuring, probably starting off in, in maybe female patients in their early 40s. Would that be too early? I don't think it would be too early. I mean, especially actually if there were any fertility issues, it's probably mm. being tracked. But yeah, I mean, especially it's more like the late menopausal transition as you go into the real, not just premenopause, not peri, but the late menopausal transition where the AMH can be undetectable. Right. Then you kind of know that's probably why that is undetectable. If you measure in a woman that's 30 and it's very low, then you know she's maybe not going into menopause, but she's going to have fertility issues. So if you suspect menopause is on its way, then yes, that could be one to easily track. And again, some women, they don't have symptoms. So you don't have to go into this deep dive, biochemical dive with them. But if you do want to kind of investigate and find out what's going on, yeah, going into her 40s, any symptoms and do check the AMH. Because there was a pretty, let me see, there was actually where you knew when it dropped to a certain level, it may become barely detectable five to six years prior to full menopause. Mm -hmm. And then they found out it dropped from about 1.5 nanograms per ml to less than 0.2 nanograms per ml about six years prior to menopause when women were 45 to 48. So in that age range, take the level. If it drops down, especially if you have a baseline and it drops to less than 0.2 nanograms per ml or 1.4 picomoles per liter, 
then you go, hmm, this is probably for this woman, her time from phantom menopause. And then for earlier women, 35 to 39, it's about 10 years. So it almost comes out about the same. So I don't know, unless somebody had fertility issues or symptoms, I would check in a woman prior to 40. But if you do, yeah, if you do, you actually see these pretty good guideposts as to when this drops to from one baseline down to the 0.2 nanograms per ml, then she's probably approaching menopause. So once that's sort of been ascertained, you now have the cardiovascular risk that accompanies that. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what you found in the research around those fluctuations in those sex hormones, cardiovascular risk. Are there any sort of really important biomarker patterns to pay attention to? Yeah, for sure. Because that's the biggie, you know, because they do find that estrogen, it's funny, estrogen is a funny thing in the estradiol because too much is bad. And especially if you Mm -hmm. break it down or detoxify it incorrectly down the wrong pathway, it's very bad, but it's really protective. So high levels of estradiol before menopause are correlated with reduced risk of heart disease. And both estradiol and DHEA would have an inverse association with risk of heart disease. So when the estradiol and the DHEA were high, there was a less risk of heart failure. And when they were low, then you had an increased risk. So definitely you can look at the estradiol and the DHEA. But there was also another study that was multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. And they looked at specific biomarker patterns. And women who had cardiovascular disease had lower level of estradiol. They had the lower level of DHEA. They also had a higher level of bioavailable testosterone. And for some women that can cause a lot of issues and symptoms if the testosterone is too high. The total testosterone to estrogen or estradiol ratio is an Mm -hmm. issue. And that goes up when a woman going through menopause has a cardiovascular disease, or that could be a sign of increased risk of cardiovascular disease. With cardiovascular disease, of course, they had a higher CRP. They had a bit of a higher D-dimer. They had a higher fibrinogen. Mm. They had a higher IL-6, which can be pro or anti-inflammatory, but we're assuming with a pro-inflammatory pattern that that's the IL-6 is the pro-inflammatory marker. And then HDL was lower after when you had cardiovascular disease or that was at risk for cardiovascular disease, the HDL was even lower. And then they went into things, you know, with cardiovascular disease, they weren't exercising as much. They had a lower EGFR. So their renal function was a little compromised. They had a higher waist to hip ratio. They had a higher BMI. They had higher blood pressure. So all these things that we know, you know, maybe they had risk factors prior to menopause too, but we know that that pattern, right? That pattern is going to be an increased risk for cardiovascular disease pattern. And that's the person you especially want to make sure If they are overweight and they're obese, you have to address that with a healthy diet, with healthy weight loss, with an increase in exercise, because they're going to be much more at risk, even for sudden cardiac death down the road. And we could say, and they had throw in the omega-3 index. (laughs) Yeah, Take a look at that. It wasn't in a lot of studies, but it really should because it's such a good biomarker, especially for sudden cardiac death. So that would be another one you'd want to check. And my guess is going to be probably low because sometimes I have to say this, if someone is overweight or obese with a lot of pro-inflammatory adipose tissue, a lot of times that's not just being overweight, right? You didn't just gain weight by eating a lot of avocados and almonds, right? right? It's a lot of junk food. It's the absence of omega-3. It's the absence of fresh fruits and veggies and all of that. So the obesity in that case is really so pro-inflammatory. 
you're going to be at risk for cardiovascular disease anyway. Mm. But then you drop your estrogen too low, then you really almost double the risk. So definitely if obesity is present, it's a pro-inflammatory obesity because there is some healthy obesity. I know it sounds strange, but metabolically healthy obesity is a thing, but usually it's unhealthy and that needs to be addressed because that's way too much risk of cardiovascular disease. Cool. And then of course, there's two other conditions that are associated with. One is bone issues. Mm -hmm. So osteoporosis, related fractures, significant concern in the postmenopausal period. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that you point out here is that they outweigh the incidence of myocardial Mm -hmm. infarction, stroke, and breast cancer in this group combined. Mm -hmm. So obviously paying attention to bone menstrual density, you assess that using bone density scans. So definitely paying attention to bone markers. And in the Mm -hmm. white paper, we put some serum bone markers that you can observe. And then the other one is uh, oxidative stress, recognized risk factor for chronic disease, including atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, vasomotor disorders, neurological disease. So menopause has been associated with an increase in oxidative stress. And we talked about it earlier on when we noticed that LDL cholesterol levels start to go up, apolipoprotein B starts to go up. And of course, in the presence of a pro-oxidative environment, now we have the problem of oxidized LDL. So, and we'll talk a little bit in a few moments about the treatment modalities that we can use. And I'm sure that a lot of treatment modalities will be addressing the increasing oxidative stress that's associated with that. So let's talk a little bit about, sorry, you know, you've got a point to make. Well, I was going to add in, because, you know, I always add things. I have to add one more thing. But checking the GGT, because we know an elevated GGT, even above 17, could mean excess glutathione turnover and and metabolism, which means you have oxidative stress. So that's another thing that we could add to that oxidative stress pattern to take a look at. And a quick plug for the ODX blog, go over there. There's an article that Beth wrote about GGT. So why we've actually changed our optimal reference range and some of the Mm -hmm. research behind GGT's association with glutathione and obviously as a marker for oxidative stress. Before we move off of menopause, let's talk a little bit about natural approaches. This actually might nicely segue into a little discussion on Mm -hmm. the uh, Mediterranean diet food Mm -hmm. pyramid, which we want to talk about. Obviously, we have to be careful that menopause isn't something that you want to treat necessarily. So I think looking at it through the lens of supporting the body as it's going through this process, Mm -hmm. decreasing the discomfort through natural means, obviously being a very important first step, equally important addressing a menopausal woman's increased risk of these conditions that we were just talking about, cardiovascular disease, oxidative stress, and bone. What were your take-home points for just some ways that we as practitioners can be working with menopausal women to help mitigate some of the symptoms that they're going through, the discomfort they're going through, whilst also supporting the body and its ability to maybe offset some of the risk for cardiovascular Mm -hmm, disease, mm -hmm. oxidative stress, bone, and issues like that? I think it's so important to always, always, always remember, we just talked about this, is to go back to basics. What is this woman's baseline? What is her lifestyle like, really? like alcohol intake only in moderation. And that might be contraindicated if you have a high risk of breast cancer, regular exercise and activity, a healthy diet, mental stimulation, a smoking cessation. That was another thing. Smoking can actually drop AM anti-mullerian hormone levels and can hasten menopause by three years. Mm. So it'll rush it along. So smoking cessation is so important and social engagement, right? The basics, like what do we need as humans? Not just food and shelter. (laughs) But we need social engagement and healthy relationships too, right? Because sometimes social engagement can be unhealthy. So that's those are the basics. But then if you really, someone is symptomatic and they're doing all these things right, they can go further 
with natural means. And some of these include like a mind-body approach, like biofeedback, mm. cognitive behavioral therapy had some good research, essential oils. I love essential oils and mm. lavender especially had some good effects. And that's, again, the essential oil is the actual, the basic compound found in a plant that exerts these particular effects. And we forget that. That's what medicine, <laughs> a lot of medicines are made from those really important mm-hmm, compounds mm-hmm. within a plant. Well, essential oils are important compounds within the plant. And I use them and I love them. Lavender was good. Hypnosis, meditation, mindfulness, stress reduction, relaxation, and yoga would be like a mind-body approach. Dietary supplements, herbs, and just a good basic multivitamin mineral supplement, especially if somebody has any absorption issues, that's a must to have a really good balanced multivitamin mineral supplement. And then you can go even further with a whole system approach like acupuncture, homeopathy, reflexology, traditional Chinese medicine has some good mm-hmm, research mm-hmm. behind it. You know, a lot, I have to say like some of these things, like you said, the shiny new object that people want to fund yeah. a lot of research for, they're not going to make money. If they come out with something from the research, you can't make money on a lot of natural things. You can't yeah. patent them. So people aren't putting the time and effort, unfortunately, into the type of evidence-based research everybody wants to see. But its use in human, in the human over time, I think is some of the best evidence, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. if a woman, like I know things that work for me. I use sometimes a little combination, but mostly it's natural approaches. I know what works for me. I know it works. I know it's placebo. So when you try something with somebody and it works for them and there's not a high risk to it, then that to me is the best evidence that this is actually effective. So all these things, they do have research behind them, but like you said, nobody's really funding. It's not a shiny new object that people want to fund millions and millions and millions of dollars. So let's segue actually into our next topic, which is the environmentally friendly Mediterranean diet pyramid. (laughs) Because actually this does appear in in the white paper and I wasn't, when I thought that we were going to go through that. So it's a pretty cool segue. Mediterranean diet is a good example of a healthy foundation for optimal nutrition. In fact, the European Menopause and Andropause Society position statement strongly supports the Mediterranean diet for menopausal health management. We talk about that in the white paper. And then there's this updated, more environmentally friendly Mediterranean diet pyramid. If you go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog, we do have a blog post called the Mediterranean diet pyramid. And it's really quite cool. I showed this to my wife the other day because she was thinking about incorporating more of sort of the Mediterranean diet into our nutritional program. We don't obviously can't show you it in front of us, Mm -hmm. but I want to juxtapose this with the standard food pyramid. So the standard food pyramid, it's a pyramid. On the bottom is grains. Next level up is vegetables and fruits. Next level up, obviously, it's tapering towards the top. Mm -hmm. Meat, fish, and eggs, milk alternatives, and then oil, salt, and sugar. So that's the food pyramid, the one that's been thrown out, the one that the healthy eating food pyramid, a simple visual guide to the types and proportions of foods that we should eat every day for good health. Well, let's juxtapose that with the food pyramid from the Mediterranean diet. So take us through this pyramid, if you could. And I love the fact, just sorry to interrupt you, but I'm looking at the picture right here. But below this pyramid mm-hmm. are regular physical activity, adequate mm-hmm. rest, conviviality, mm-hmm. you know, getting together, eating as a family, having mm-hmm. meals together, wine and other alcoholic fermented beverages. But anyway, it's sort of interesting to me that 
the judicious use of wine and fermented mm-hmm. beverages in moderation and mm-hmm. respecting social beliefs. Anyway, I for, love for that. medicinal purposes. Yes, only. medicinal purposes only. So that's kind of on the bottom, the sort of the foundation mm-hmm. of this pyramid. So walk us through the pyramid from the Mediterranean mm-hmm. perspective. Well, again, I actually, I like the visual of a pyramid because the base is the base, right? It's the foundation. Yeah. And the hopefully people flock to the website to see this because it is very cool. But the base is actually water, right? We really yeah. need more water than anything. So water, and of course, it goes on the right side of the pyramid. Make sure that's clean water. Let's do Yeah, no, I like that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, water is clean water. But then the next level up is just visibly plant-based foods. It's so clear that fruits and vegetables and even they have olive oil there and whole grains if you tolerate them. And especially locally, they mentioned locally grown grains and mm-hmm. locally grown fruits and vegetables because then you don't have to truck things across the country and use up all that fossil fuel. But around the corner on the right side of that is let's grow that sustainably. Companion planting, reduce exposure to pesticides. It all matters. Mm-hmm. And that's going back to basics. 200 years ago, we never farm the way that we do now. Right. So going back to basics, yeah, from 200 years ago, that would actually help you get to the sustainable Mediterranean food guide. So then above fruits and veggies and whole grains. We have olives, nuts, and seeds, which should be incorporated daily if you can, three or four times a week otherwise. But again, these are things that grow out of the ground. And even in my earliest nutrition training, I'd look at something and say, you know what? I just tell people, eat what grows out of the ground. Eat what grows out of the ground. Yeah, right. That's simple. And then a little bit of what walks, flies, and swims for animal-based products. Avoid anything that's made in a laboratory, right? (laughs) Yes. Man-made food is really scary. You want to talk about, we don't know what's in that. So, right. Out of the ground, all natural. I say, as long as it's not poisonous or illegal, then go for it. So, you know, onions and garlic and spices, and we forget that sometimes. And that's visible front and center on this pyramid, right? And then dairy, if you tolerate it, there's a whole philosophy behind whether or not to use dairy and I feel bad for the cows, so I like that they treated well, but does somebody tolerate dairy? Should we drink the milk of an animal? Should we eat an animal? So we have all these questions, but anyway, dairy is in there. In yeah, my- but here's the interesting side, because you do talk about the other side of the pyramid is shown. It's goats and sheep, Yep. yep. right? Yep. And if you That's look true. at, I mean, if you do go over to the Mediterranean and you go to Spain, France, a little bit, and then obviously in Italy and Greece, they eat a lot of sheep's cheese. They eat goat it's cheese. It's Pecorino Romano. You have exactly. To look at yeah, 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 yeah. So. Anyway, I just wanted to point this out. This is visually, this is a wonderful visualization. Anyway, keep going. But I wish that I had erased the little picture above that because I actually have a rabbit. I know. Yeah. And I would not eat a rabbit. I have wild rabbits I feed all the time. They're my favorite. Yeah. Don't eat rabbits. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you look at chicken in the eye. It's I don't really, I don't feel emotional, but you look at rabbit in the eye, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Don't eat rabbits. (laughs) But we're talking the Mediterranean here. Yeah, well, I know. Petrosa is a place I mentioned, but anyway, okay. Yeah. But don't. We can stop eating rabbits. But we will Photoshop the rabbit out. Thank so, you. Yeah. <laughs> Could you? But fish, you know, you look at fish in the eye, you know, it's not quite as emotional. So fish and seafood and even poultry and eggs and organic when you can get them. And mm-hmm. eggs, omega-3 eggs, if they feed the chickens flax, then the chickens will produce a high omega-3 egg. So that's worth it too, especially someone that's not going to eat seafood or vegetarian doesn't eat seafood or vegan, then they need their omega-3s preformed from somewhere. So omega-3 eggs can- And those yolks will be bright orange, deep, deep orange. Yeah. See a different lutein in there and everything. So yes, that's important. And then as we go up the pyramid, right, just a little bit, you know, ham, sausage, the processed meats you could really do without or minimize. 
and then fresher meats would be better. And that's where you have the cow. It's really a whole nother level, right? Like with the dairy, mm-hmm. you didn't see the cow milk. But here you see eating cows, again, moderation, yeah. moderation, and moderation. Poor. And I think I'm not sure what the animal is above the cow. I hope it's not a goat, maybe. I don't know. It better not be a horse. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was that? thinking. I didn't want to say that. But yeah, I just thought, okay, no. it's not a horse. No, no, no. It's don't not a horse. do that. You know what? It looks like horse, but I think he's just working on the farm. He's just running. Oh, yeah. He's pulling the plow. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So he's not to be in things. (laughs) Look a horse in the eye, you know? Could you really? Oh, boy. No, 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 no. And then sweets, of course, sweets, you know, junky sweets that are really sugary and processed and commercial, you could kind of do without. But as you know, I talk about you can make a really healthy, my Choco Tricious. I mean, I add everything. I add glutamine. I add psyllium powder. I add protein powder. I add everything, essential oils like peppermint. So you can make a healthy sweet, but it's still a treat and it's still at the tippy top of the the pyramid. And just nuts in there. Shameless plug for Beth (laughs) Chocotricious. She was very kind to allow us to put that up on the blog. So go to optimaldx.com and go to our blog, her Chocotricious recipe there. So thanks thanks for doing that. One of many. (laughs) And we'll be adding more, hopefully. So uh, (laughs) anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring this up because I think it's a great. visual aid so feel free to go to the blog and if this is an open source article it's from the international journal of environmental research and public health published in november of 2020 so thanks so much for digging that up and getting that up on the blog too so very very cool treasure (laughs) yeah let's change our gear so a little background for those of people that have an active odx subscription we have a feature on the software called ama ask me anything should be aba ask beth anything Um, (laughs) so People post questions for us, and Beth very kindly dives into the stacks. So we pulled a couple of questions that we've had over the summer that, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. So the first question, and again, if you're interested in reading the answers to these, we have Mm -hmm. what's called a knowledge base at OptimalDX. So if you go to KB, the letter K and the letter B dot OptimalDX.com, that will take you over to our knowledge base. It's also linked from the website. So... The question was, I just had a patient come back with a cholesterol of 135 milligrams per deciliter. Very low. He thought it was great. I'm not so sure. Any thoughts on why his cholesterol would be so low? The first thing that you pointed out, we're assuming that the level is total cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So yes, it was. So the first question would be, is the person on statin drugs? So I think the first thing you should ask a patient Mm -hmm. that comes back, or you should probably know whether or not they're on statins. Ideally, from our Optimal DX perspective, and we've got a white paper on total cholesterol on the website, we will be adjusting our optimal ranges based upon some of the resources in that white paper. But ideally, total cholesterol should not be below 160 milligrams mm-hmm. per deciliter. So low levels of cholesterol associated with malnutrition, neurodegenerative disease, cognitive and mood dysfunction, and even mortality. So could you talk us through, there's a couple of research pieces that you pick up on that I think it would be interesting to talk about. So why don't you just dive through those? There you go. And I want to point out again, we talked about it first with, in the menopause piece, but remember that steroid hormones are made from cholesterol, right? Absolutely. Body, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, cholesterol yeah. is so important. And that brings us to the monograph, right? I had to expand yeah. this into like 10 page monograph, <laughs> but the information is there. And I found out, especially the low cholesterol, especially with schizophrenia, with suicide risk, all these things is very important not to do, go too low on cholesterol. Right. It's the most abundant lipid in the brain. So yep. you need it, you know, if you're myelin sheath and it's so important and people don't realize that they think that they demonize it, but we know it's oxidized cholesterol. It's really the problem with too much of LDL. We'll talk about that. 
in another paper. So yes, so it is produced in the body. It's required for the synthesis of cell membranes. Every cell membrane contains cholesterol. And where it's found, is it in the mitochondrial cell membrane or is it the cell membrane? Because that will determine how much cholesterol is needed for that cell membrane, how permeable it is. Of course, we need it to produce vitamin D. It's the basis of the compound in the skin that gets converted by UV light and becomes eventually vitamin D. So cholesterol is the base of vitamin D. Bile acids, steroids, yeah, we talked yeah. about yeah. pregnenolone, progesterone, all those, they all come from cholesterol to start with. And that's so, and cortisol and aldosterone. So all of these things in the body, the body is smart. There's wisdom there. It produces a lot of cholesterol for a reason. And then whether or not it becomes a cardiovascular risk, a lot of times depends on its oxidation, mm-hmm. among other mm-hmm. things, but of course. So the brain, yeah, requires a significant amount of cholesterol because cholesterol becomes neuroprotective. And the research suggested even below 180 milligrams per deciliter, which is 4.66 millimoles per liter, could be detrimental in neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and ALS. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really fascinating. These are levels that should be checked across the board. Really, everybody could be part of the annual checkup is to look at things in this perspective. If the cholesterol is going too low, you got to check somebody's risk for like I said before, even schizophrenia and suicide risk, but Parkinson's and ALS as well. You don't want it too low. It's associated with mortality too, significantly in malnutrition as well, below 160. Yeah. And the one piece here, which I thought was fascinating, lower cholesterol was associated with increased aggression, violence, and Mm antisocial behavior. And as you pointed out, suicidal risk. So keep that cholesterol level above 160. Little caveat here, I don't know if you follow Peter Atia, Dr. Peter Atia. I have um, seen his work, yeah. I get his weekly email. In fact, his last email that he wrote was actually addressing cholesterol-lowering medications because apparently this is a new brand of cholesterol-lowering medications that are mm-hmm. just coming out. Do you, have you heard about these? That's not a statin. You mean that No, it's not a statin. It's something else. I, I have to dig it up. I can't remember what it is. But anyway, so he was concerned about the use of statin and then this new, much more aggressive cholesterol-lowering drug, whether or not it actually decreased cholesterol levels in the brain. And Uh he actually said that it doesn't. That actually the brain, it produces almost all of its own cholesterol. And these drugs don't really have much of an Mm -hmm. impact on. So that's Mm -hmm. great to know. But we're talking about is peripheral. If you're looking at things Mm -hmm. like Parkinson's disease and ALS, obviously that's a peripheral outside of the central nervous system, potentially. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to go and read this paper, it's in kb.optimaldx.com. Implications of low cholesterol is the paper that we are looking at. All right, another quick one. If a male has a ferritin of 350, but a serum ion of 81, would donating blood be a good course of action? Now, I love that you dug up a paper called Current Applications of Therapeutic Phlebotomy, because <laughs> you pointed out would not be advised to have someone donate blood based on ferritin or iron alone. Other biomarkers in clinical conditions must be investigated. And then you cite a paper that's saying therapeutic phlebotomy is only approved for three specific disorders in the US, hemochromatosis, polycythemia vera, and porphyria cutanea tarda. But I, I want to mention too that sometimes it is recommended by a physician for someone who's on testosterone therapy. Yes. Because their H and H goes to the roof, their RBC yeah. goes to the roof. So they might be told to go and donate, but that's under again. Phys- and I will tell you this, Beth, and yeah. I may have shared this with you. When I get yeah. my blood drawn, and usually I'm doing huge panels. Mm-hmm. So I remember I had my blood drawn by one guy who's a phlebotomist. He said, you know, I haven't drawn this much blood since I was in the army. 
And it was like 14, 14 vials. Anyway, I feel great. I feel great after phlebotomy. So, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, my energy levels are up. I feel clear headed. Yeah, it's quite weird. Anyway, (laughs) one of the things you point out in here is actually probably the most important piece here, rather than wanting to lower the ferritin, which of course is a symptomatic is a knee-jerk response to a biomarker that's outside of range, mm-hmm. is to really actually investigate why the ferritin was elevated in the first mm-hmm. place. So we've got iron below optimal, but still within a standard range. Elevated ferritin could be related to two things, which we talk about a lot in the work and obviously in the software as well. So inflammation and acute infection. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about ferritin increasing in acute infection. There was, I think, mm-hmm. a paper that you cited here Limitations of serum ferritin in diagnosing mm-hmm. iron deficiency in inflammatory conditions, mm-hmm. which I thought was first. Yeah, 2018. Yeah. So. so always investigate, right? And do a series. Do, always do a investigate. Of, yeah. 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 Anyway, those are the two knowledge base articles. So thanks for providing those. Let's end up talking a little bit about some of the things that we talked about off camera, no, off <laughs> microphone. We, in these podcasts, I think it's an opportunity for you and I to potentially dive into some things that we are finding interesting or some mm-hmm. research that we're coming across. So we talked a little bit in the break. What sort of things did you pick up or, you know, we had a bit of a break over the summer, a break from mm-hmm. the podcast, not from our work. Talk about some of the things that you're potentially working with or, or some things that you're doing with your clients that may be new or just some, share some of your experience as a practitioner of what's kind of up front and central for you right now, if you could. Oh, I had one really interesting person. I can't say who or too many details, but she, <laughs> I already said she had a very low vitamin well, that's D. What, like, that's now 200 million people in the U.S. But someone had a, a very low vitamin D of like 18. And I might've mentioned this before and I do apologize. No, no. It did come up again. So a very low level of vitamin D and supplemented pretty still conservatively with about 4,000 IUs to 6,000 IUs, get some sun. And three months later, it was up at 98. Wow. And yeah, I'm like, oh, what did I do? Let me go check. Did she take, you know, because sometimes the dropper, when you get the vitamin D liquid, one drop could be like a thousand IUs possibly. So I think, well, did she take 10 drops at one time or a whole dropper or what have you? So anyhow, Nope, nope. Didn't take any more vitamin D that I'd recommended. Got some sun, but lost a lot of weight. And Mm. that's when I dug in and found out that the natural course of things is that we're out and about in the summer. We get exposed to sun and we need some sun and you make your vitamin D and you store it in the fat, adipose tissue. And then over the winter, when there's no sun, people tend to lose weight when we didn't have as much food around in the winter and it would release vitamin D into the circulation. And so when we do have plenty of food around, that's usually not happening. But in someone who lost weight, all that vitamin D kind of flooded her serum level went up. So flooded circulation. Yeah. And I had to back down on this extra supplementation and then check again in three months. So everybody, you know, I know someone else too that even wasn't taking much supplementation, but had a vitamin D of 123. And that's the nanograms per ml, of course, Mm -hmm, on both mm -hmm, those cases. mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, we're going to back off on that. So you always, always, always want to check when you're supplementing with anything really ideally is you monitor regularly because you're going to want to change that course of action according to the biomarkers. So that's just something to remind people. Not everybody needs that 5,000 IUs of Mm -hmm. vitamin D a day. You might not need it. And I had somebody tell me, 
Well, the doctor said take 60,000 units. And then somebody kept taking those. What? Bag. Well, they 60, do get a shot. Uh, yeah. And They'll get yeah, a shot of my... 50,000 I use right one time, though. Not yeah. over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kept taking it without checking, without going back to the doctor. I'm like, oh, oh my geez. gosh, no, right? You can have... But we've covered a lot of vitamin D, obviously, with COVID. And there's a lot of great stuff on the blog and the research blog and also in the ODX blog, on Optimal the blog, about vitamin D. I think one of the pieces that I picked up was there's very little research about high levels of vitamin D in and of itself being detrimental mm -hmm. to health. And I guess probably what the problem with it is its effects on calcium levels. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if someone's been dosing with 50,000 IUs of vitamin D, check their calcium and yep. phosphorus yep. levels yep. to make sure that they're not in a hypo or a hypercalcemic mm -hmm. situation because that can be problematic and they're going to start... They deposit the calcium all over the body, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad, yeah. Bad, bad. So yeah, always check. Just don't wing it. People tend to wing it, you know? Any dietary stuff that you've come across or things that you're doing differently? Well, I mean, you know, I complained... <laughs> two meetings ago like SIBO I think we could do maybe a whole yeah we could yeah, yeah 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 it's yeah. a tough thing to kick it's really tough I've had it and I've had three oh, I'm sorry yeah, yeah, yeah I know and I don't want to whine you know you figure out how to manage it and you know when it's coming on and you figure out how to manage it and I don't love antibiotics but let me tell you something like you feel good after phlebotomy if you got SIBO and you take a course of antibiotics you feel amazing wow. so I have a way of just either taking a lower dose for less time and then it can transition to herbs but something that has to be talked about more because I think it's yeah. being missed by well let's do it let's do it when now <laughs> no I mean some Another? point we've got our schedule right so let's get yeah, SIBO oh, yeah. on that <laughs> I'll put it, yeah, yeah. I would bump uh, fertility down because I don't have kids, but that might be me. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, let's do um, I mean, it's up to yeah. you. I mean, yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that offline, okay. but yeah, God, I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. It's a, well, whatever. I've got family Everybody's members. Uh -huh. Yeah, we have a couple of family members. Is it more females than males deal with this? You know, I think so. I yeah. do think so. Maybe guys are just gassy and they don't care and they don't complain about it. <laughs> You know, I had to have to remember to see if they said more women than men, but right. I actually have a paper I'm working on. Sorry for someone else, but oh, that's okay. know, yeah. <laughs> I'm cheating on you. But anyway, I'll go back to see if it's more You're women than men. But back. it seems that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an important topic. So, you know, I wish we could do this like a radio program. People could call in and say, Oh my gosh, let me tell you about my SIBO. Or let me tell you about Well, we could. We could do uh Facebook Live or YouTube Live oh, or something like that. Do I have That'd to be brush kind of my fun. hair, though? That, and I have to get ready. Well, we would. We'd have to get you a boom mic and one of those ones, you know, feel like you're, uh, that would be like Howard Stern or something. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I have to get dark, Yeah, I have to get dark glasses. And <laughs> yeah, cool. That'd be kind of fun. Maybe. Well, thanks for sharing that. Again, I'm sorry you're dealing with that, but I yeah. think, no, no, it's all good. <laughs> so I want to wrap up just something that we, we've kind of alluded to a little bit in the podcast today is kind of my quest to get back to basics. Mm -hmm. I graduated from National College in 98. And I feel like I'm an old timer now. I've been out of <laughs> practice now for like 23 years, is it? Eight, nine, yeah, 23 Experience. years. Oh. I guess I am. I guess I'm an experienced naturopath. I look at some of the stuff that's coming out. And I think there's such a drive now to embrace the shiny object, the newest, latest and greatest. And I don't want to, to point fingers here, but you know, even in the advanced lab or esoteric lab testing, there's companies that are coming out with these massive panels of things and just more the better. And it's just like more, more, more. It's such an American, I hate to say it, it's a slightly American way of looking at things. So I've actually spent 
a little bit of the summer kind of going back to basics. And it was sort of triggered recently by the Vermont Association of Naturopathic Physicians put out a, a lecture series. And one of my old teachers, Dr. Jared Zeff, Z-E-F-F. So Jared Zeff graduated from National College, I think, in Portland in 1978. So he really is one of the granddads of modern naturopathy. And he taught our philosophy of naturopathic medicine in 1994. And I remember his lectures to this day, very powerful. And I took a little bit of a dive back to looking at some of his principles of naturopathic medicine. So there were six principles that we were taught of naturopathic philosophy. He talked about sort of the reasons why we look at philosophy as a way. So it's not about principles. It's these principles of how we operate and we view our patients. So these six principles were first encoded by the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians in September of 1989, which is Mm -hmm. five years before I started school. So they were relatively new. And the first of the principles that is, and some of these have Latin names, I guess, to make them look pretty cool, but vis medicatrix naturae, which is the healing power of nature. And I love that. I love the healing power of nature is really about recognizing that the human body is a self-regulatory organism. It has an incredible innate capacity to heal itself. And I think sometimes if we just get out of the way, (laughs) the body can heal itself. So that's the first part, really recognizing the healing power of nature, recognizing that the body can heal itself and that we just have to support the body in that process. The second one is tole causam, which is a Latin for remove the cause. And of course, I think one of the things that is important to recognize is that illness doesn't occur without a cause. And of course, there can be many, many different causes. And I think sometimes that we get so distracted by the symptom. The symptom is not the disease, right? It's the body's expression of what's happening when this disorder is happening, or this dysfunction is happening within the body. So really, what can we do to kind of get back and treat the cause? I think that's so, so important. And it's forgotten sometimes. I know, I know, absolutely. Because allopathic medicine, if you look at just the medication titles of what they're doing, they're all about shutting down. It's all anti this, right? Anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, Mm -hmm. anti-whatever, antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of it is about shutting down the body's natural processes. So third one was primum non nocere, which means Mm -hmm. first do no harm. And I love that too. It's like... When you're looking at at working with a patient, first of all, do the least harmful thing possible to that patient. (laughs) And I think I remember one time working with a a naturopath early in my career, and this patient came in with a really chronic kidney infection. It wasn't just a urinary tract infection. It was all the way up into her kidneys. It was an excruciating pain. And I remember having a really strong, long conversation with the physician that I was sort of working under at the time. Mm -hmm. I was very against antibiotics at that point in my career. I was sort of more of a zealous kind of like, yeah, we can do this with natural herbs. And he said, you know, if you remember the tenant, first do no harm, Mm -hmm. the more harmful thing for this patient right now would be to not do an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the spectrum of harm, yes, Mm -hmm. putting an antibiotic into the body is not good. So I always take that approach. In the face of COVID and in the face of all of humanity dealing with this pandemic, is it more Mm -hmm. harmful to not get vaccinated than it is to Mm -hmm. get vaccinated? Anyway, that's Mm -hmm. a personal choice. So I thought that was pretty cool. The third one is the doctor is teacher. 
And I think you and I do a really good job with that. We're always constantly teaching and educate, I think yeah. educate. That's why I created Optimal X and the software was to help physicians and practitioners have a more nuanced conversation with their patients about their lab tests through interpretive reporting mechanism so that you can actually educate. And once the patient is educated and you know, you're treating them as a rational human being as opposed mm-hmm. to just someone that you're going to shove an amber bottle of pills at, <laughs> and you're engaging them in, in the process, the more they're going to become part of the healing process. So mm-hmm. we are teachers. The fifth mm-hmm. one partnership. was <laughs> partnership, right? Fifth one was treat the whole person. I think that's so important, recognizing that even though a patient might be presenting with a headache, which obviously is located up in the head, but there's also recognizing that the body is an interconnected systems on biochemical, metabolic, even anatomical perspectives. And then the sixth one was prevention. And I think that's a huge part of the work we do. We have the tools. That's what's frustrating. It's not like yeah. this is something new that we just learned. Yeah. We have the tools already. We have the tools. So anyway, I was just diving back into some of the old naturopathic philosophy and sort of the guiding principles. So those six principles are the healing power of nature, remove the cause, first do no harm, the doctor is teacher, treat the whole person, mm-hmm. and prevention. I love it. Yeah, really cool it. stuff. Beth, thank you very much for sharing yourself today and your research and the wonderful work you do. Beth Allen is a practitioner in, you call yourself a nutritionist, would you say? How would you describe yourself? (laughs) Well, I actually hate the term dietitian, but I'm officially a registered dietitian nutritionist. They finally tagged that onto the end of it. I'm a clinical nutritionist is is what I like to say. Yeah, not a dietitian, not dietetics, but more clinical nutrition. So I'm a clinical nutritionist. With many, many years of experience. Yeah, with credentials. (laughs) And you're in uh, Southwest Florida? Yeah, in Naples, Florida. Naples, Florida. Naples. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Beth. I'm Dr. Dick and Weatherby. I'm the founder and CEO of Optimal DX. So come over to OptimalDX.com. Our new website is up and running. We've got a ton of incredible information for you, ways that you can interact with us. If you have any thoughts or ideas or things that you want for us to cover in our podcast, we're sort of expanding it a little bit beyond just talking and doing a deep dive into a particular topic. Let us know what you want to hear email us at support at optimaldx.com. If you'd like us to do a call-in show, (laughs) (laughs) then let us know. We can do it. But anyway, thanks for sharing your time with us today, Beth. And thank you for listening. Again, Dr. Dick Weatherby, Optimal DX. Let's go save some lives. Bye.